We are thrilled to have Andrew Peterson on the broadcast today. Andrew Peterson, if you don't know him, first of all, just go to your music source you use, whether it's Spotify, Tidal, Cobuzz, whatever you use. Put Andrew Peterson's name in and have a ball. Andrew is a well-known artist in the Nashville area and uh, has had a very busy career. Andrew is the founder and president of The Rabbit Room. They've produced over 30 books to date. They have a wide reach on social media, so you want to check out The Rabbit Room. We'll have all this in the show notes afterward. His first nonfiction book was called Adorning the Dark, and we'll talk briefly about that because in some respects, Andrew, this is a, a sequel to that? A little bit, in some yeah. respects, It's kind of, yeah. a, kind of a broadening of some of the themes. If you don't know about his uh, young adult fiction, he writes a series of books called The Wing Feather Saga, and you should familiarize yourself with that. He's run Christie Awards, which is a young adult fiction award. The Warden and the Wolf King in 2014 won World Magazine's Children's Book of the Year. On and on I could go. We've had a chance to be together on occasion. Andrew is an old soul in a lot of ways. He is a wordsmith. If you've not heard his Behold the Lamb, that's another thing you need to check out. Can people watch that on YouTube, Andrew? Uh, we stream it, the one show, the Ryman, every year we live stream it so people can watch it if they can't make one of the shows yet. We've done that a few times, and it's a remarkable, it's an unusual experience. I love the way you showcase so many other musicians. That just, you know, most artists, not to be unkind, but it's it's about them. It's their art. But you have a penchant, intentionality of showcasing other musicians, and it's fun to watch them from start to finish, Behold the Lamb. So, well, we're here today to talk about his new book called The God of the Garden. And the first thing I have to say is I've not finished the book uh, in uh, full disclosure, but you're a wordsmith, brother. I'm telling you, I know that's nothing new to your fans, but you are a wordsmith. I want to talk a little bit about your writing style because some authors write to deadline. Some authors wait for a creative you know, est, whatever. How, how do you write? Well, the deadline is not a bad thing. Uh, the deadline is really helpful to me. I have a lot of interests. Unless there's something breathing down my neck, I'll tend to get focused on a lot of other things. And, and then all of a sudden, in a panic, I'll finish the thing I committed to. And so, I, you know, I, I think that all that other stuff that I'm doing is going into the pot that allows me to, whenever the deadline comes, there's something to draw from, you know. This book was kind of my COVID book. It was like I was on the road doing shows. I was actually in England at the time in March of 2020. And, you know, everything shut down and came home wondering what in the world was going to happen. And uh, my editor from uh, of Adorning the Dark, the previous nonfiction book, said, hey, do you want to write a book? And I said, no, that's okay. I don't really have any ideas right now for what a book would be, but thank you. And I'll, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll circle back to you later. And then once it became clear that there was no touring for the foreseeable future, I was like, suddenly I emailed it back. I was like, suddenly I have all these book ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent last year working on this book. Yeah. So, um, and I have read a, probably a third of it. Uh, first of all, I have a little admission that we grew, lived in East Texas for a number of years and your references to pine trees and uh, SFA is the second largest forestry school in the nation, Penn State and Stephen F. Fight for first place, but they have these experimental forests, and they're 100-acre blocks all around Nacogdoches, 
And they do everything from oaks and mostly pine, of course. They disc, they burn, they plant. And it's been fascinating over the years to watch that experimental forest. And then, of course, the pulpwood industry and paper industry and two-by-four industry is the backbone of a lot of East Texas, that and, and poultry. It's fascinating. So when you drive those East Texas roads, you'll see these long log trucks or you'll see the pulpwood trucks. And they're very different, and they look like there's not a smooth piece of fender on any of those vehicles. <laughs> they are beat to death because of where they have to go to get that lumber. East Texas is, is, yeah. is almost exactly, culturally, almost exactly like North Florida, where I'm from. Yeah. Well, that's us reading about the pines. I thought, goodness gracious, I did not realize that. So, Pulp trucks and, and the smell of the pulp factory. Oh, gosh. They're almost as bad as the uh, poultry processing. Boy, they stink at 2 in the morning. Whew. But anyway, it, it's interesting because I remember Stephen S., they talked about the one renewable resource. And in a world of sustainability, in a world that's so concerned about you know conservation and recycling, I thought forestry is a wonderful industry for both you know, gardens and parks and homes, as well as, as you talk about the materials in the very room you're sitting. So anyway, just, it was a fun connection. Let's talk about, you mentioned COVID and a lot of us, I had my own little COVID experience and I really enjoyed, frankly, being sort of locked down. And I loved that year, but you do get longing for, you know, some sense of fellowship and people and going and coming. That being said, you took advantage of it. And you wrote, so back to your writing style, start to finish. How long did it take you to finish? I know you never finish, but. Oh man, it probably took me six months or so. There was a lot, there was a long process of just trying to figure out what I wanted to write about. And you know, the, a good way to figure that out is to ask yourself what you've been reading and the books that I'd been reading for the last couple of years. And and they were all either about trees or about like agriculture, it was, it was stuff that tended to be gr really grounded, you know, um, the Wendell Berry way of writing, where it, which pays a lot of attention to community and place and where you are. And I had, I kind of lost a little bit of my heart to the UK a few years ago and um, really loved the fact that there are public footpaths there. You know, you can, mm -hmm. you can wander across the whole countryside, across private land. Nobody's going to shoot you. You know, it's this kind of miraculous thing for someone like me who grew up mostly in rural situations, but was cut off from the land around me because it's all private property. And to go to a place where you could actually kind of ramble across through fields of cattle and see corners of the land that you, you're cut off from here. And so, and you had no cell service. What's that? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I've been reading a lot about that stuff. And, and uh, then I told that there's a little writing group that's not really a writing group. It's more a group of writers who get together and just kind of hang out. Uh, we had the idea to like, everybody had a project and it was like, let's just get together and have some coffee and talk about what we're working on. Not to like, you know, critique or to share or that never does me any real good. But through those conversations, I just said, I think I want to write about trees. I know that sounds weird. And they were like, sounds weird, but we think you should write about trees. And so uh, it turned into what I thought was going to be a book that was more tree specific, ended up being uh, a book that was a memoir about, I think, the presence of God. And trees were like the framework that I was able to meditate on that. I have, uh, and you know me enough perhaps to know I'm more of a theologue and kind of a bookish. I have no creativity in me whatsoever. I look at guys like you and I go, okay, Lord, I didn't get that that spark like you guys did. And so it, it's a little disconnect 
for a guy like me who's linear. <laughs> that being said, what I found striking about it was, and I know this was part of your intent reading. I went, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember that. I remember dogwoods in Georgia. I remember maples and I plant tree. Every house we buy, I plant trees. Yeah. And we've moved around much more than you have in, in our, in our ministry life, which is great. But, um, I go back to the houses like you do and I look, I planted that tree and they're enjoying it now, 20 years later, you know? And then of course, to jump ahead a little bit, I lead tours to Israel and when you're in uh, the Mount of Olives and see these trees that allegedly, I don't know that I believe it, but 2,000 years old, don't think they're quite that old, but nevertheless, they're old. And to watch how that family of tree grows is such a different kind of tree than a maple or a bonsai or something like that. So it is a fascinating subject, and I love, I appreciated all that to say. I appreciated how you brought into Christ Talks About Trees everything we could go back to, whether it was the cultivate the garden, which I want to talk a little bit about, but the building of the temple complex. And then fast forward, wood is not a readily available commodity in Israel. It's a rare thing to have wood. In fact, they had to import it, as you recall, to build the complex. So anyway, all that to say is a backdrop for folks that may not be creatively uh, wired. I'm creatively deficient, I guess you would say. So let's go back to your flow. So easy to read, folks. When you pick up this book, and again, you don't need the show notes, but just put Andrew Peterson, the God of the Garden, and you'll find it anywhere you want to buy a book. But what's fun, it's such an easy read. You you have such a lovely writing style. It's like, oh, this is a warm book. I could sit with a coffee or a tea, whatever my beverage is, and just turn pages. The memories of childhood flood through all of us. So I know that's part of your intent. Yeah. You've got a story. And, and give us a little bit, without spoiling it, you went back to your boyhood home or parsonage, and that was a pretty interesting retelling. Sure. I was, uh, the, that's the opening chapter of the book is about Monticello, Illinois, which is the little town where my dad was the preacher till I was seven years old. All four of us kids were born there, and we moved to Florida when I was seven, and it was that culture shock was is something that I'm you know I've been trying to get to the bottom of for most of my life um, mm-hmm. because what it ended up doing was kind of like freezing in time all of my memories of this little midwestern farm town and uh, kind of making it an idealized kind of Eden and uh, and then Florida of course is swampy and sandy and live oaks and kind of more jungly and dangerous in many ways the way I've described it before is that it's like Somebody lifted me out of a Norman Rockwell painting and dropped me into a Flannery O'Connor story. <laughs> Pretty dark, yeah. <laughs> so I'm always have had this real heart for Illinois and John Deere tractors and big fields of corn and uh, and so you know getting to go back to that town and walk the streets of the town as kind of like a ghost and remember things and ask myself questions about how I how my heart was wounded how I became you know, in some ways who I am and trees ended up being one of the anchors, you know, it's like most people can remember trees from their childhood. And, and for me, it was going to Monticello and having all these little doors unlocked to memories that had been cut off from me before. So that, that kind of gets you into what the spirit of the book is like. It's like kind of like a walk through the forest of memory. And at every turn, there's this sense that, that the Lord was with me, you know, and trees were kind of like this way that helped me realize that one of the things that really unlocked the book 
for me was the Bible Project, which I love what those guys are doing. And they have a podcast, I mean, hundreds of episodes, but they did a 10 episode series on trees in the Bible where they, they dig into what trees mean theologically and how they are a part of the story that God is telling. And, uh, you know, there's this sense that I think the way they put it is that every time uh, it's like a motif in scripture, every time there is a tree or a grove or a forest, there tends to be like a, a moment of testing or a moment of decision that's going to happen or an encounter with the Lord, you know, Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre and uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Eden. There's plenty of examples, uh, but it was so interesting then to take that broad theme of trees in scripture and then apply that to my my specific life and the specific places where I have memories that are kind of hanging on hooks, you know, like a hat almost. Do you think childhood memories were a fascinating subject? Some people in, you know, I've been pastoring 40 plus years now, and some people are loathe to think through their childhood for whatever reason. Some are dismissive. Others seem to not be able to get out of it. I had this axiom. I say uh, maturity is when you stop blaming your past, you own your present and plan your future. And too many people can't get out of their past and they get fixated on it. And we all have friends like that who they were, and I'm not minimizing the wounds or damage that occurred, but at some point you can't let that past control and overshadow you, especially as a believer, for goodness sake. So give us some insight on Andrew Peterson. So you, and I won't divulge some of the, it's nuanced how you talk about those things, which I, I respected, but I can kind of connect the dots help the person who maybe is loath to revisit some of the childhood things as well as don't stay in the childhood memories. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think for me, it was like, I talk about this in that opening chapter is that I, there were moments when I was walking through my town where I saw things that I thought, is this some weird, you know, blocked memory? Did something terrible happen to me here? Why don't I remember more of this or that, you know? And to my great relief, the example that I use in that chapter is that I, I, I wandered across the street from the house that I grew up in. Uh, there was this old rundown house that was for sale and uh, it looked creepy, to be honest. And I, I remember thinking, you know, I know that I'm really, I, I have plenty of uh, parts of my story that are pretty screwed up and a lot of wounds that I can't really put my finger on why, where they came from or how they're affecting me now. And so I walked into the backyard of this old house thinking, Oh no, like did something terrible happen to me here? You know? And, and then realized that there was uh, in the back, there was this old overgrown garden with little uh, metal tags staked into the ground. And I looked and they were all different varieties of peonies, which are flowers that I really love now. And I texted my parents and I was like, hey, what's the story with the house across the street from where we grew up? And my mom said, oh, man, the guy was a gardener and he he grew tulips and peonies. And we used to go over there in the springtime. and It was beautiful. And it kind of redeemed in some ways my that little mm. corner of my childhood, because I thought sometimes the, I think the way I put it in the book is you go digging and you're afraid you're going to find a skeleton. And mm -hmm. instead you find a treasure. That's kind of what it was for me. It's like we have to be brave enough to go back and, and do a little bit of digging and it can be scary. It can be harrowing, but I really believe that if the Lord is a redeeming God, then he takes, he can resurrect even the skeleton that you happen to find, you know, in a good and beautiful way. Uh, I, there, it just reminded me of a great story about Brown Bannister, who's this 
old legendary producer here in Nashville. And I told him about all my regrets. I was dropping my son off at college. And I was, for me, when my oldest went to college, I was just overwhelmed with this feeling of, oh no, it's already here. I didn't do enough. I was, I toured too much. Or I, all I could think of were all the ways that I had let my son down, you know? And of mm-hmm. course he was like, my son was like, pops, it's okay. Like you're a good dad. Don't, (laughs) don't go there. And I told Brown, who's older than me, I was like, yeah, man, I just have all these regrets. And, and uh, he laughed when I told him and said, oh man, I know exactly how you feel. Let me just tell you, it has been so cool to see the way the Lord has redeemed all my screw ups. And it just cast this vision into the future. It's like all the stuff in the past. Yeah, of course there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of stuff, but like, I believe that the Lord is the Lord of my story, you know, and he is going to, he doesn't need for my story to be flawless in order to make something really beautiful in the future. So kind of what you're getting at is that looking into the past actually gives us a little bit of strength as we step into the future, because an honest look at the past, I think is a, uh, you have to not only reckon with the pain, but you have to admit to yourself that the Lord has never left you or forsaken you. The first house of clear memory for me is one in Atlanta, Georgia, actually called Chambly. And it was a half acre lot on a pretty steep incline. My brother and I had two Clinton lawnmowers. They weren't self-propelled. And our job was to mow the half acre. I was too young. He did most of it, but nevertheless. And my dad planted 50 pine saplings on the perimeter of this property. I mean, and they were saplings. They were probably free, knowing my father and my brother and I inadvertently mowed over a lot of them. And, of course, he was very unhappy about that. Fast forward probably 10 years ago, I had I was doing something in Atlanta for someone. And I said, told my wife, I got to go buy the house in Shambler. Drove by it. One of them remained. And that tree is probably, I mean, that tree's probably 60 years old. And uh, it, w- it was not well cared for. It was very unfortunate. But I thought, my dad would laugh to see that of 50 <laughs> saplings, one survived. Anyway, I digress. Uh, so I love this line. And again, this is early in your first chapter. Childhood is a photo album of mostly blank pages. And I was hunting for a few Polaroids to restore their rightful place. Maybe this is a better analogy. Childhood is an art museum that's been pillaged by time. And there on the blank walls below the faint rectangular outline where the painting used to hang, a little plaque reads, the source of your anxiety, the reason you're so desperate to be loved, the day you knew the world was broken, and the day you knew you were just as broken as the world. I mean, again, the wordsmith, beautiful stuff. And again, it's back to that tension of, yeah, we were hurt. Yeah, we had sad things happen. Yeah, we were... I mean, childhood innocence is a little bit of a euphemism, and we need to be careful with it, but we're innocent. We're not exposed to evil. We're not wounded yet. And when those injuries happen, of course, it it cements for a lot of us. And and again, some people can't get over that. So back to my question, encourage the person or help the person who may be stuck there and can't get away from those framed outlines. Well, I mean, like I said, being brave enough to to go digging can be really helpful uh, with a counselor or whatever. I know that's been tremendously helpful to me. I know for myself, I'm a, you know, a professional storyteller. So I, I can, I have constructed, uh, 
a narrative of, of how things went when I was a kid, you know, and why things are the way they are. And I remember the very first time I sat down with a Christian counselor, kind of told him, Hey, here's, here's my story. Here are the things that hurt me and here's what's going on. And he said, uh, uh, he said a few really helpful things, but one of the things he said was, I've never met anyone who could correctly interpret their own childhood. That we, we end up kind of framing things out and making sense of our lives with the narrative. And sometimes we need somebody to push back at that narrative and kind of reframe it for us and show us, hey, actually, you know. Uh, so, for example, one of those things is that I, I struggled with a lot of shame. You know, I remember a kid uh, and I'm just going to get super honest here. A, a kid brought a, a dirty magazine to school when I was seven and that, you know, unlocked some darkness in my own heart. And I remember carrying around all of this shame and I just felt all this guilt and, and the guy and the way that I would frame it was there I was in this picture perfect little town. Why was I the source of such, you know, wretchedness, you know, and I couldn't let go of the fact that I, everybody else seemed fine and I was screwed up. And the guy said, <laughs> he was like, just so you know, there's no such thing as a picture perfect little town. He said, every town is full of broken people and sinners and in some ways, there's there's pain that we we blame ourselves for, and then you have to realize that that pain gets handed down. You know, it gets uh, passed on to us from other people. So it's not that we aren't in some ways culpable. It's just that I needed him to push back at my story and show me that, like, hey, you know, the Lord is going to redeem that. But also, there's a whole lot more happening at the edges of the story than just you and this thing that you've constructed. So I think that 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 relieved me of some of the you know, self-loathing that I'd carried for 30 years of my life, you know? And so I guess that's what I'm getting at. The the other side of that is that, you know, the story we read in scripture of of Eden and then exile, and then the promise that's coming that God's going to make all things new, that there's this new creation coming. I think in some ways, all of our lives are a little microcosm of that macro story, you know, that we look back, you know, I'm not getting into like original sin doctrine, that kind of thing. But I am saying that when you talk about Eden and exile, I think everybody kind of knows what that means. You know, we all sense that things aren't the way that they're meant to be. And we move through the world with this ache and this longing. And the trick is to let that longing point you toward Christ. You know, what you're really longing for is the source of all that goodness and beauty who really loves you. And the fact that the, the actual ground we're walking on is a part is a character in the story. You know, it's like the, uh, the literal trees that are growing around us, the, these bodies that we've been given, we have this, uh, bright hope of resurrection on the horizon. So it's like, yes, you acknowledge the past. You go, Oh yeah, there was a brokenness that was there. And now I'm living in the exile of kind of in Babylon and longing for the day that we'll return to Zion. And so, so framing our own stories in the context of the story that scripture is telling is, forces you to deal with the past, the present, and look to the future, like you're saying. When you think through what you just shared, for example, help me, help folks listening. How do we keep from this being a, you know, all about me experience? And I I think, you know, I'm almost 65. And one of the things I I tell people, you can't learn things in your 20s that you're going to learn in your 60s. It's just, there's no way. And as I'm older now, empty nest grandchildren, I look at things so differently than I did in those busy 20 and 30, 40 years when you're building your career, whatever you're doing. 
you know, you're a slave to your mortgage, you're a slave to taking care of a family. And when we can all be very egotistical in a sense that it's all about me, I, me, my. And it seems fewer Christians, and again, I'm not saying this dogmatically, it seems the older men and women are the ones who get it. <laughs> you know, when, when you hit your 60s and 70s, you understand why did I work so hard on that when I missed the moment of enjoying my backyard maples, you know? And yet the tension there is it can't just be about our creature comforts, Andrew. It can't be about our story, right? It has to be about how I fit in God's plan, how I'm serving and worshiping him. And those two words in Hebrew that Adam was to, to cultivate the garden. Interestingly, those are Hebrew roots of worship. It wasn't physically trimming the verge like the Lord of the Rings. It was it was a worship that entrusting that God had given him dominion over this animal kingdom and plant kingdom was an act of obedient worship to the God who created him in his image. And ever since then, the garden's been mucked up. So your and my life, right, is to be an act of worship, not just making my life make more sense. Is that, I'm sorry it's a long ramble, but that's you know where I'm going. No, I, I think I, I'm smelling what you're stepping in. Uh, a few things come to mind. I remember Walt Wongren Jr., who you've probably talked to before. He died earlier this year. A great loss. He was one of my favorite writers. Um, he talked about, you know, if you've ever read any of his memoirs, he tends to cast himself as the knucklehead in his own stories, you know, and it's a, such a brave thing. I love it. And I remember hearing someone say, beware of people who are the heroes of their own stories. <laughs> uh, I think that's a wise thing. And he never was, you know, he's always the guy that has the lesson to learn in those stories. And somebody asked him at one of our rabbit room conferences, um, like, how do you know when it's when you can share the dark parts of your own story? And Walt was like, you have to wait until you can see the arc in which uh, you have to be able to wait until you have enough objectivity in your, there's enough distance from the story to where you can see the way the Lord is the one who is the hero of that story, not you. Does that make sense? And mm -hmm. so I think anybody who's writing a memoir, there's this whole real fear that like, this is self-indulgent and I'm just writing my own thing. Does this matter? But like Beekner said, the story of one of us in some measure is the story of us all. Like as a songwriter, that's been this like centering reminder that like my, if I can be a good steward of my story, if I can tell it well, then it's not just my story anymore that it kind of goes out into the into the world and people take on the DNA of it and they they apply it to their own life. But the, the, the real truth of the matter is that we are all called. I think the psalmist gets at this constantly is that part of our job is to make known the deeds of the Lord among the nations. Right. And sometimes that's really big things. And sometimes that's a subtle shift in your own heart. And so the only way to really get to the bottom of it, for a writer at least, is to dig in and write about it and quiet that voice that says, oh, this doesn't matter. This is just my story. Well, no, if Jesus lives in me and the Holy Spirit is present, then he can use, you know, my loaves and fishes to feed more people, you know? And so I think that's the thing is like, like heaven forbid this memoir be something that makes me look like the star of the show. Like the, the goal of this book is to help people see that, king of creation cares about his creation and you are a part of that creation. And so uh, living in humility and service to that is kind of what I'm hoping people get out of the book. Your comment about heroes. Interesting. You probably know Don Miller and, and some of his work with the story brand and 
some of the shift of the way we're talking to our culture. It used to be people came to the mentor for answers, and they don't want to do that anymore. And you know, I, I used to work with young pastors for decades, and they don't have any use for an old pastor anymore, which is fine. Things change. But you look at the world through your own lens, obviously. And that's what I mean about getting older. As you get older, as I get older, you look at things very differently. And I don't think there's any substitute for age. Hopefully, we're getting wiser, not you know more ensconced in our prejudices. But one of the things you talk about in, in is you know you, you mentioned of course this is based on trees. You say trees bear witness, and you know again this house we bought four years ago I planted two. In fact, you have a list of the trees you have, and I have planted most of those. I have two in in my backyard that I planted, and they pop fall. They're maples quicker than any tree in my neighborhood. My immediate next door neighbor who just moved there last year texted me and said, I'm so jealous. Your trees are turning colors. <laughs> and they were just gorgeous this year. Tennessee's had a magnificent fall this year. It's been so fun. And the 13 years we lived here, it's been probably the brightest fall. And it's so, you know, it goes away so quickly. But what do you mean by bear witness? Huh. So that's a good question. It gets back to what I was saying about the, this idea that trees are can be keepers of our memories. Just like when you were talking about the the trees that you've driven back and, and looked at, that tree means something to you in a way that doesn't mean anything to the new homeowners, you know? But you, due to the fact that it's this thing that you put in the ground, there's nothing quite like it. It's not like building a house, right? Because the house is, was never actually literally alive. The tree though is, if it's if you planted it 60 years ago and it's still going strong, it probably has another couple hundred years left of life in it. It's anchoring your memory in, in a way that n- nothing really else does on earth, I, I don't think. And so uh, there's something to it. I have yet to talk to anybody when I've asked them, what are the trees that you remember where they haven't <laughs> grown younger right before my eyes? And they, they at first they'll say, ah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I didn't really have any trees. And five minutes later, they'll be like, I just remembered there's a tree at my grandma's house, whatever it may be. But I think what I'm getting at is this idea that place matters and matter matters, that the places we live are significant. And there's this Gnostic, you know, poison that's gotten into a lot of our minds um, where there's this sense that heaven is this faraway place. And that, you know, reading N.T. Wright a few years ago, uh, Surprised by Hope, was a revelation to me. Like it was not a part of the theology of the church I grew up in was this idea that, as N.T. Wright says, heaven's great, but it's not the end of the world. <laughs> uh, what he means is that heaven is wonderful, but what, what Revelation tells us is that there's a new creation coming. And so if that's true, then that changes the way that I see the tree that I planted in my front yard. You know, that in some way, this tree is partaking in the story of God's creation and new creation. Anyway, I don't want to make too much of it. Obviously, you don't want to mm-hmm. make it so that trees are like the end all be all of everything. But it's like one of many windows you can pick to look at the way God cares for his creation and the way that we are meant to, to live out our days here. You also talk about getting your hands dirty. And this is one thing I attribute my dad to. He was uh, a product of the, you know, the greatest generation, but boy, he insisted on my brother and me getting our hands dirty, whether it was, you know, working on a car, painting, fixing something. We had this running joke that no matter what he attempted to fix, he could fix it, but he broke something else in the process. So we had these great memories of it, but he planted chinaberry trees, Chinese tallows from the backyard. Again, he was kind of a cheap guy, 
But so we had a field behind our house, and he found these little tallow trees and planted them in the front yard. And they're trash trees. I mean, they are trash trees. There's no purpose. You can't burn them. You can't build furniture, but they grow quickly in Houston, that hard gumbo. And those things were enormous. I mean, they were, they were not straight. They were not that pretty. They did have a nice fall to them. They had this little deciduous, I guess, and they had a little nut. But anyway, I, I vividly remember my dad, and he, he just he chortled when he looked at how proud he was that he found these trash trees, put them in the front yard in Houston, Texas, and they're these giant trees that eventually had to come down. But getting your hands dirty, it, I think we've lost it. Even with my kids, Andrew, I feel like I've failed not you know, let's get in the dirt. Let's, you know, whether it was weeding a flower bed or aerating your grass or planting, you know, whatever. What is it about that that's so, and I don't even want to overstate it spiritually, but there's something therapeutic. I tell myself in my head all the time when I'm doing something where my hands are going to, you can always wash it off. Get your hands dirty. Don't be afraid to sweat and get your hands dirty. Yet there, in our information-oriented screen world, we're, we've removed ourselves yeah, man, I was at a conference a few years ago when they were, uh, Norman Wurzba, who's this like Christian guy who deals with agrarian issues. He was talking about how, how helpful it is to pay attention to how many times Jesus uses agricultural metaphors when he's yeah. teaching about the way God works, who he is, and how until the last hundred years or so, people would have really known intimately what he meant by those things. Right. Mm. And so few of us are farmers anymore. So few of us have garden plots or know what it means to, and I was one of those people. My parents were gardeners and I hated it when I was a kid. And now <laughs> I'm way, way into it. And they, you know, I'll call them for advice and they think it's hilarious. They're just like, Oh, uh, so any, but I remember, for example, standing out in my backyard, I tried growing grapes and I haven't had much luck with them, but, I knew that I needed to prune my grapevines after a few years. And I went out with my clippers and YouTubed how to prune grapevines. I was standing there with my iPhone trying to learn how to do this. And I was shocked at how violent it was. Like you have to prune those things way back. Oh yeah. You think you're killing them. Yeah. Around that time I read when Jesus was talking about, you know, how the branch that bears no fruit is going to be cut away so that other branches can bear good fruit. Abide in me as I abide in you. Like that verse, what Jesus meant was so much richer and deeper because I had engaged. I got my hands dirty and actually felt the grapevine that the Lord made, right? He came up with this idea. And then Jesus uses it to say, this is how God works on you. And so mm -hmm. I, that's just one little example of the way planting a literal grapevine helps me understand the metaphor that Jesus was getting at. Right. And so I just, there, there's a guy named Arthur Boers, B-O-E-R-S, who wrote a book called Living Into Focus that I read years ago that I loved it because he was talking about how, especially in an age of computer screens, we need focal practices, which he talks about a focal practice is something that connects you with creation, connects you with, it ignites wonder. Uh, it connects you with other people that it's, it takes discipline and when he was describing all these things that make up for what he calls a focal practice, I was like, oh, that you just perfectly described beekeeping. Like when I got into beekeeping eight or so years ago, I dove headfirst into it. I was so completely fascinated by it because it was a new discipline I was learning. It, it ignited wonder in me daily. It still does. Oh, yeah. And it engages me with the Lord and with his creation. And so in an age where so much of our work is cerebral and screen oriented, it's all the more crucial for us to get out and remind ourselves that this is the world the Lord has made and it is good. And there's something that we can't articulate that is happening in us when we 
live out the original call that God gave Adam and Eve, which is to work and to keep mm-hmm. the garden, to cultivate it. I don't think that's metaphor. I really think that he's literally saying human beings were meant to work and keep this world that he made, right? And so it doesn't take much. You buy a potted tomato plant, you know, put it in the corner. I promise you that it will change the way you think about your own story and what the Lord is doing in you. I um, have some White House ivy that I'll be glad to get you some cutting because there's quite a story behind the ivy that is in the Oval Office to this day. And it was during FDR's period. And um, we've given probably, I don't know, several hundred plants away to people. It's super easy to propagate. It's an indoor thing. It's, it's related to cilantro, but it's super easy to grow. It's fun to play with. And I give a word document and I give it to people as a gift after I've got it propagated. And the stories behind that are so, I mean, they take on an interesting life of their own, but there's pictures. If you look anytime the president is sitting in the oval office beside a dignitary, there's a fireplace mantle and that Swedish Ivy is behind on that mantle. And there was an article written in the times hundred years ago, or 30 years ago about the most photographed plant in the world and if plants could talk <laughs> what it's seen, but in more recent times gotten into uh, succulents, oddly enough. And it's the same thing like your beekeeping. I, I just go down these rabbit holes and I just can't get out. And yet there's something incredibly therapeutic. I don't understand it. I'm not a gardener, but you know, my, my laundry room right now is disarrayed with succulents and Swedish ivy and slow growing, all this stuff that I kind of try to play with. Some are epic failures, some are spontaneous successes. I don't understand it all. But to your point, you know, there's something back to getting your hands dirty and seeing God has put this creation in order. And I'm not really I'm not participating in it. I guess I am. I'm not really doing anything about it. But to see there's nothing I'm doing that makes it grow. You know, I, I'm preparing it. You know, and when he talks about some some water, some plant, some water, some harvest. So you're right, the metaphors are replete, but back to you know the bigger question, help the Christian, maybe who feels like his or her life is sort of a mundane routine behind a computer screen, they're busy with the mortgage and worrying about supply chain, whatever they're consumed with right now, and Andrew Peterson's the guy that seems to understand rest. He understands being still. He understands taking a deep breath. That is an irony because I feel exhausted all the time. Um, I'm trying, I'll say I'm trying to learn this. And I think 2020 was a chance where it was thrust upon me. Yeah, we all had to figure it out. Uh, You know, I would just say maybe as a, a final word, which is to tell a quick story, which is that I have a friend who is struggling with depression. And I called this friend and I said, hey, I've got a present for you. Come out to my house. And we came out to the property and I had ordered probably 150 bluebell bulbs. I love bluebells. And I don't know if you've ever been in England and seen a forest full of bluebells, but it's just breathtaking. There's some of the first things to bloom in the spring and uh, it's just gorgeous. And I kind of dedicated a corner of our woods to this person. And I was like, we're going to plant these. And we, you know, I would dig the hole with the shovel and the person would drop the bluebell and we'd stomp it down. And I was like, we're going to come out here in April and I'm going to show you what God is doing. And you take this little dead looking bulb and you put it in the ground and you can't see it change. You know, there's no visible change, but you're kind of like planting hope 
in a very literal sense that you're going to be around in April to see this thing change. Right. And it works on both levels. It's a wonderful metaphor. And it reminds you the Lord is always working. Like he, he mm-hmm. is, he has made you his own and you may not be able to see a change in you, but one of these days you're going to see this forest of glory that the Lord is growing in you. Um, but also it works literally because you can walk out into the, this literal patch of forest and we're going to literally see these bright blue, purple blossoms coming out of the ground. And so I don't know, there's something to me about the fact that they harmonize, you know, the metaphor and the actual given world work in tandem and we get to be a part of that, you know? So yes, pay attention to the metaphor, but also the metaphor works best if there's a literal flower that you get to see with your own eyes coming out of the ground. I love it. Andrew Peterson, his newest book, The God of the Garden, you can find it anywhere books are sold online. Thanks, Andrew. Blessings. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.